Welcome back to the B2B Founder Podcast. I am your host, Brett Trainer. Today, I'm happy to welcome back Tim McLaughlin to the program. Tim is the general partner at Co-Founders Capital, an early stage venture capital firm based in North Carolina. They're heavily focused on early stage B2B companies, mostly in the software space. And I had Tim on late last fall to talk about you know, his perspective on what they're looking for in, in founders, co-founders, product teams, et cetera, what are they likely to invest in, and frankly, what they're not likely to invest in, just to share some perspective. So I thought the timing was good to have Tim come back on and kind of talk about, you know, as we're in the, hopefully, the tail end of the pandemic, what they're looking for, what's changed within their portfolio, what they're looking for in companies, and what they're kind of expecting through the remainder of 2021. It was a really interesting conversation and a unique perspective. You know, a lot's changed. Distributed workforce, remote workforces, technology, digital is here to stay. I think you really enjoyed this conversation. So please do tune in. And as I always, if you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe and like and share with your friends. Thanks. Now on to the interview. Hey, Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Brett, thanks for having me back. No, it's great to have you back. We had uh, one of our most listened to episodes the last time we had you on here talking, you know, venture capital, what you guys are looking for. So I thought it made sense to have you back on to help us kick off 2021. But before we get into some of those details, in case some of the folks missed the first episode, I want you to just share a little bit of your background and what you guys are doing at Co-Founders and we'll, we'll jump into it. Yeah, sure. So we've been investing since 2015 co-founders capital in North Carolina. So we primarily invest in North Carolina in B2B software companies at the seed stage. And we're kind of a rare venture capital group that will actually make investments pre-revenue. Most of our investments recently have been at revenue, a little bit of traction for the companies, but certainly our portfolio is made up of companies we've invested in pre-revenue or at revenue, early revenue. We're investing now out of our second fund, which is a $31 million fund. We've made 12 investments out of that fund and are probably targeting, you know, maybe four or five more. Certainly, it's been an interesting investment pace with everything that happened in 2020, which I'm sure we can talk about. But that's where we're at. Again, 12 companies, funds doing great, companies are doing great. We work very closely with our entrepreneurs, help them go on sales calls, hire their management team, raise their next rounds of funding. So right at the intersection of entrepreneurship and venture capital here. Yeah, hands-on. And I think that was what was really cool about the model. And I think if I remember correct, the vast majority of your investments are Carolina-based companies, right? And right within that area. So That's right. Actually, we actually have a co-working space, which a lot of our companies work out of for free. Uh, we work with the town of Cary, which is right, by, right in the Raleigh-Durham area. And we have this free co-working space for all of our portfolio companies that we manage. And it's easy to attract companies when not only you're getting advice and mentorship, but there's actually a fund associated with it as well. Uh, companies tend to like that. Yeah, it's a good combination. And it makes sense, right? Because then you can at least get your network, especially while well, maybe post-COVID or we're starting to get back a little bit to face-to-face meetings. But I think it makes sense having everybody 
that can just bounce ideas off of each other, not just having you guys as part of the process, right? Every entrepreneur knows that there's that one email that comes in where you need advice, help, bounce it off of somebody in the next two minutes. And it's always hard to set up a meeting or get somebody on the phone and figure out what to do before you reply. But when we're in the office right next to you and you can walk in an open door and just say, hey, I got a critical moment in my company's trajectory. I need to know what you would do right now. That's where we provide some advice and feedback or a sad story of how not how we know not to do it, which sometimes is the most helpful thing for companies to hear. Lessons learned. Yeah, that's right. I love the model and I was just surprised that there was that many startups, but the amount of deal flow that you guys look at is, you know, maybe that's a better thing. What is the kind of the percent of companies that you look at and the number you actually invest in? It's a good question. I will say one thing that helps with deal flow, if you're a venture capital firm and you you say you'll invest in a company pre-revenue, your inbox will fill up pretty quickly. Uh, so that that certainly helps. I actually just put these stats together. We saw deals that I would say were reasonable emails that were not just spam that were sent out about 2000 plans. This is 2019. So let's take 2020 out of it. We haven't kind of finalized those numbers, but I'm sure they're a bit of an anomaly. But 2018, 2019 held pretty strong with about 2000, 2200 plans that we would see between 250 and 300 meetings going down to 10 to 15 companies that we actually entered serious diligence with that could be pre or rate at or post term sheet actually level. And then we, we, we made five investments in each of those years. So that's kind of the funnel as you look at it. Wow. That's, I mean, it's a reality, which is good. Again, that's a lot of companies in the the raw. I know you looked at some outside of the area, but not many though, right? I mean, I would say the 2000, I mean, one of the filters that that we put on it, which narrows them down pretty quickly is, are they in our geography? Are they interested in moving into our geography, which we've seen a lot of. And so we, we might have to have a meeting or actually look through the deck and follow up a little bit just to see if that's an option. And so really it's four or five boxes that we want to check out of the gate. Can we check four of the five or three of the four. And if we can, let's move them. Let's just have a quick call, a quick email and see if we can move this thing forward. Yeah, that's awesome. And just curiosity, is there, I'm sure there's some things. So if I'm a, a founder thinking about now free revenue, I'm thinking about reaching for venture capital, you know, in your experience now, what are some of the don't do's in that email or that first pitch to you guys that automatically disqualifies you? There's got to be something that you say, just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's have they looked at our website and have any idea what we do and what we invest in? The information on the fund is you would know by reading our website if you ruled yourself out. And to bring up one of those items immediately in an email that you send cold is going to rule you out very, very quickly. And I think one of the pieces of advice I always give to uh, an entrepreneur is think about what you're asked from the investor's perspective. If you're asking a $31 million venture fund to invest in your company and you're raising $25 million, don't be expecting them to lead with a $10 million check. It's not something that's going to happen. So look at it from the investor's perspective and try to get as much information as you can to say, does this make sense? Or how should I position this investment opportunity where it would make sense from their perspective? Yeah, know your audience, right? It's Does it still surprise you to this day, the amount of folks that don't do just the basic homework? <laughs> yeah. And, and I found, and I've talked with, and we work with our portfolio companies to build a list of highly targeted investors. And to be honest, when we raise our fund, we go through that same process, which is 
who is interested, who cares about the value props that we're talking about, and then get a more highly targeted list. You're going to be so much more efficient with your time reaching out to 50 funds or 50 different types of investors that make sense than trying to get conversations started with hundreds that you haven't spent the time to actually target. One other thing that I think might be interesting, which I've kind of come up with recently, and this is an experience of our fundraising, but also companies that come pitch us, is think about your first value prop when you're looking to raise money is we're going to give you a good return, a good return on your money. Normally, that's always value prop number one. Here's the return we can get you. But when I'm talking about highly targeting folks, think about value prop number two. And does that align with them? Is there a geographic component that will make value prop number two, right? We're going to make you money and you can invest back in North Carolina, or you can invest back in the Chicago area, or you you can invest in a geography that you care about. Is it, we can make you money and we're a sustainable technology that is going to promote something that the investor cares about a little more. And when you can align value prop number two with the investor, with what they care about, that's how you highly target folks and are efficient with your time. Yeah, that's a great idea. And you're right. I bet you a lot of folks do not even think about it. I mean, it's simple when you say it, but (laughs) right. It's just getting to, yeah, we can help. We'll do this and right. Not just, we're going to do this and to make it relevant. If you can't do it, then to your point, don't waste the time. Cause I've got to believe some of those founders just waste, unless they're just blasting it out and not taking any time. It's just not a good strategy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's not a good strategy. Take your time on the front end, build a targeted list, send a custom email. That's the way to do it. Got it. Got it. So see, I took us off topic already because I really wanted to focus on 2021, but I want to add value and wherever you can add value, please keep going. So you mentioned the software side of it, right? Pre-revenue or early revenue. So COVID, I think we chatted last time in the middle of it, you guys were still, I can't remember the exact time, but obviously we were now six months further into COVID and, you know, where I think a lot of the digital is here to stay. I think distributed workforce is here to stay. I think B2B is fundamentally going to have to change the way to do business quite a bit. So for you guys, how has that shifted either with what your current investment, your current portfolio, or two, what what are you going to look at maybe slightly different now in, in 2021 going forward? Yeah, it's something that we have a lot of conversations about, right? Being proactive with the type of deals that we we look at. The one lens we try to put on a lot of deals is the idea of COVID noise, which is, is this acceleration of this company's success, is it sustainable post-COVID? Or is it something that is a result of a temporary budget that has opened up for whatever reason and a temporary pain point that's opened up? And it's, it's often very hard to tell. Or has COVID accelerated an already existing trend that's going to outlast the pandemic? And an example I give is we have a company, Mix, M-Y-X-X, that's in the grocery e-commerce space. So allowing consumers to meal plan, order, pick up, delivery, in-store shopping if they, they would want to, but custom meal plans for them and their family. And that's a trend that's not going away post-COVID. People have realized the convenience of that. COVID has just accelerated that trend. I know myself, I very rarely had you know groceries delivered to my door. And now that's the only way I'm getting my groceries, right? Except they won't in North Carolina, they won't drop off a six pack of beer along with it. So I still have really? to take myself to the store every once in a while. Yeah. It's, 
that's a huge pain point. Someone solve that one. We'll be okay. I think somebody did. Maybe maybe it's North Carolina that's the outlier. Uh, wasn't it DoorDash that just bought Drizzly, or I think they were called, and they deliver all they do is alcohol delivery. But but the alcohol laws, it's like selling to fifty different countries. Every state has its own, you know, laws around it. So you got to be careful on that one. Yeah, that's true. So that is a lens, pretty obvious lens that we're we're putting on it. And then I would say from an investment perspective too. Is someone else so much better positioned for whatever trend is going to be like finding folks for the working in the gig economy or video collaboration tools for remote workplaces? Like, is there somebody that's so well positioned in the market that they are they're so far ahead of whatever where where we can invest that there's not a very good chance of us having a big successful outcome or growing to the point where we don't get gobbled up by one of these players in a very early small acquisition that doesn't really return a whole lot to our fund. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You're right. And that's a whole new dynamic that wasn't there <laughs> 12 months ago. We're closing in on it, but yeah. Yeah, I still think a lot of these larger enterprises, at least in the B2B, are kind of two schools of thought. One, we're just modified, right, until we get to back to some level of normalcy, right? So our people are working at home, but we'll get them back in the office, you know, the customers are going to go back to the way they used to buy versus the way they've had to buy now. And there's others that have completely adopted the man, this is, we're getting rid of our corporate real estate. We don't have the office in downtown Chicago anymore. We got to figure out how to make people more productive out of their homes. And it just seems to me those like two worlds. (laughs) And there's obviously the few that are sitting in the middle, but that's probably not going to, going to work very well either. Right. So Yep. It really is going to be interesting and affect a lot of different industries. The other thing that, you know, we talk to a lot of our teams about now is how are you building company culture now in 2021 that you're going to be able to retain employees? Our companies spend so much time and any any listener that has been an early founder or, you know, you feel like you're basically a staffing agency, right? Where you're putting out all these posts for jobs and you're interviewing a ton of people and you can't really afford to outsource to search firm sometimes early on. And then when you do, you realize you should have been doing it for a while. But um, when you do that, you spend so much time and money and effort recruiting in the right talent. And the reason they want to stay is they want to work with the people. I mean, they, they care about the, the vision of the company and sure they like getting paid, but it's the people that are around you that make you enjoy your, you know, what you're doing every day and moving the needle for them and the company together. And so how are companies going to take advantage of the fact that, People are looking for solutions to build company culture in a remote workforce or ever-changing, more remote workforce than it was before COVID. I don't know what the answer is, but I'd like to see somebody find a solution and then quantify the value of that for companies. Yeah, I think that's really a good point. And the two pieces that, right? One, the economic piece, if you're an early stage company, you get a higher wrong right? That's an 18 month problem, depending on what the role was you're trying to fill, right? With the hire, not working out, let go, go find the replacement, hire, get up to speed. And you just can't afford that, that piece of it. And two, I think what I found, and again, grew up in the enterprise space. So maybe a little bit jaded because you just, you went to work. These are the things you do. You want to like the people you work with. But it was still more of a job where I, now I think you have to get folks because customers are more demanding of, you know, the product they're buying. They want to buy the vision, the backstory of the company. And if you can't get your employees to buy into the excitement or the vision of what you're creating, how are you going to get your customers to do it? And so, 
you know, I think it's a very understated problem and you're right. It's hard, but if you can get it right, it's going to pay huge dividends. And if you ever get that study, let me know. Cause I'd be curious. But <laughs> I need, I need somebody to write, to write a case study and present it to us. And I'd be interested in investing. But I do think that there is a, a lot of value to making sure you get that right. And, you know, I interviewed somebody on the podcast the other day and, you know, by he had a philosophy of who he wanted to hire, but it wasn't, he wasn't intentionally doing it for the DNA of the organization. It just kind of worked that way because that's the way he thought. But there's a lot of founders that are more technically focused, right, than mm-hmm. they are the, the people side of it. And, you know, I, again, back to your point, I'm curious how many companies didn't end up making it because they didn't get the right people that bought into that, to that vision. So, yep. Good, really good point. So as we're looking now into, you know, we're in Q1 of 2021, what do you think the themes are going to be for this year? Obviously, we asked the same question of, you know, February of last year would have been no idea what was coming, but just kind of curious, what are you looking at now with this year is? Obviously, I have a, a venture lens when I put on this. We had companies in the last year that I don't know went out of business because of COVID. There are certainly businesses like that that they just couldn't sustain with whatever their value prop was in that kind of environment. But maybe companies that went out of business a little faster that were already going to go out of business, but that it kind of accelerated that. So you come up with this portfolio of companies that have either accelerated through COVID because of whatever their offering was, and now they're really you know operating in the ground running when things start opening back up. Or you have companies that there's pent up demand maybe for their solution, which now it's time to figure out, is there actually pent up demand? There are pitches that there's pent up demand and that's why they haven't been able to sell. But is there actually pent up demand for their solution? Where now there's going to be this rapid acceleration in Q2, Q3, Q4 of 2021? Or did their value prop and their solution really not resonate at all anyway? Right. And it's really hard to figure out which company is which in 2020 because everyone kind of has the same excuse. People weren't buying, you know, IT budgets were shut down, budgets were frozen, IT resources were not available. And so it's going to be a really interesting time to see which companies, funds, AB round investors are going to double, triple down on coming out the back end. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I think there will be the obvious ones like Zoom, right? <laughs> yeah, and those are ones that obviously accelerated through and right. are be lasting trends. And, you know, we have a few in our portfolio, too. One helps get patients out of hospital beds and discharge faster. Well, guess what? Hospital needs to get people out of beds and they need open beds so that they can accelerate kind of through those trends. We have another portfolio company that helps with communication around surgeries. So our OR communication, a company called Relay One. Well, all elective surgeries have been getting postponed, but guess what's going to happen now? All they got postponed, but now they need to be done. Yeah. And so operating rooms, ORs are going from 30% utilization to 70% utilization. You need efficient communication collaboration tools in your OR to be able to handle that kind of lift. So now we're at the back end, we were able to fund these companies through. Now it's time to accelerate and go. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think too, on the macro, I'd love to get your perspective on this, you know, like live and died in the, the B2B world, you know, and you, there's all that talk or there has been right of sales tech and MarTech. And if you look at all the point solutions, there's, I don't know, 5,000 plus in that world now. 
And I think it's going to be a, a huge consolidation because as we flip it even back to the simplest thing, customer experience, right? The buyers are now expecting a little more than they used to. And you know, it used to be that handshake from marketing or the SDR to sales for the demo, and then the sales rep to close it, then your onboarding person at customer service. And that's not going to be good enough anymore. And what I found was a lot of those silos all had their own data centers, right? So yeah. you had a marketing automation platform and data, you had CRM, then you had the ERP. And I think at least the companies I'm seeing fast growing in the, the startup phase they don't have all those systems. It's one data for the customer and this system that's flowing through. So are you, do you foresee a consolidation of the tech space within the B2B world or what's kind of your viewpoint of, of where that's going? Well, consolidation into platform plays across business units, definitely, or tools which are pulling in and putting out predictive, prescriptive strategies moving forward because they integrate with the different silos, right? So if you have a marketing sales enablement kind of tool that is integrated with a bunch of different siloed departments, that's then making prescriptive recommendations to your teams, that makes sense. I think that's a good way to look at it. And we have a couple of those in North Carolina that you know we, we've talked to, and that, that's really their value prop. It is still is a it still is crowded, right? It still is, how do, how do you explain what you're doing in one to two sentences, not using keywords that all the other huge multi-billion dollar kind of companies are going to gobble up uh, to differentiate yourself? Or how are you going to be on the phone for 20 seconds on a cold call and get through to someone else in the department because of how you differentiate yourself that quickly? It's hard uh, with all those going on. We, we just invest, made our largest investment to date into a company called Margo. And what Margo does is it's a CRM sales enablement solution for direct sellers. So think you're Avon, Mary Kay, Amway kind of of the world, but it's in the, the huge marketing sales automation space, but it's targeted to a very niche set of companies that have a unique problem, right? That they need to solve, which is the, the branding and messaging from the corporate office in, in, in empowering the direct seller to get that message out to their network, right? Who they're selling to. And so it's a unique proposition and a unique niche that they're solving this, this problem for. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I said, I think we talked last time, it was fascinating. It's really going to get it fascinating with the acceleration of some of these tools. And I've actually got somebody coming on the podcast talking about, you know, kind of Amazon and e-commerce for B2B, which it's slowly adopting, but right, there's just, Folks that haven't been in the B2B space that don't know that they're supposed to be silos that are just taking a different approach. So it's going to be really interesting if they can eliminate a lot of that, the steps in the process, right? And automate is more if things are digital. You still have to have the value add touch. You never can convince me otherwise that at certain areas you have to have that. But, you know, if the data is correct and it shows that customers or B2B buyers are willing to spend 50K, right, on an e-commerce, they don't right need a salesperson for that. There's a lot of models out there and go to market right now that are out of whack with what customers are going to expect. So I get that point. And the other thing I'm thinking is how are sales cycles and sales processes going to be affected by this? Which is at what point is does the demo move to an in-person meeting, move to a close versus 
send me the information or let me leverage your sales collateral or other resources that you have a little bit faster because we're not going to sit in a room and meet in person and have this whole process. You're not going to be on site doing integrations. Maybe, maybe you won't be, but how does that change the sales cycle and the sales, a most efficient sales process for these companies? And I think the expectation is where you, as a salesperson, you used to be able to provide the customer with, you know, your information, but they better be able to find it on your website really quickly and understand exactly how you solve that problem, or you've already got a strike against you. And again, I think there's some time where you're not going to be immediately disqualified, but if somebody within your industry figures that out before you, that ease of buying is going to be a huge uh, competitive advantage. And, you know, I think we may have talked about this last time. I use the analogy of the used car industry that went from, man, you had to call or actually go on sites a lot to see what they had to stock photos of what they had to the actual photos of the car. And then now Carvana will buy or sell your car sight unseen and have it delivered to your house within seven days and then returned if you don't like it. I mean, who would have predicted that you could buy a used car and probably new now with never seeing it and people would do that. You would have said, there's no way in the world. That's absolutely true. So the advice to the founders, think big, right? Don't think based on the current, think outside of it. I know you got to balance the, go too far outside the norm and people won't take you seriously. But, you know, I think now is the time to think holistically different about, especially in the B2B, I'm more focused on that. But I think there's opportunity there for the folks that can figure this out, so. And when you're thinking big, I mean, you can think big in a new industry, but look at other industries and just changing consumer trends and behaviors. I saw a a great pitch for it's not in our space, but was helping an entrepreneur in a educational toy, like child toy, like exchange company. Okay. Uh, and and so it was very high quality products and you could be on a subscription basically and based on the age of your child development when they were getting the right toys and you know, the immediate pushback from a lot of the older investors that are looking at this is no one's ever going to do that. The kid's going to have the toy in their mouth and then no one's going to share it. And it's like, no, look at how, look at different industry shifts that have occurred in comparables. You would have never just ridden in a car with a stranger before, right? <laughs> True. Just, right. But, but now you are, and you would have never stayed in someone else's house where they sleep in their own bed and you never met them before. And now you're going to go sleep in it. Like nobody would ever do that. And it's not true. And so I think you can point to those other shifts in consumer behavior and consumer trends on that side. Yeah. Knowing it's the balance, right? You got to be able to monetize it. So if the shift's going to take five years, you may not have that time, but. And the same in business, right? And, and yeah. the same in, in B2B sales. What, what are the shifts we've seen that have, have proven to be successful and no one thought they would? True, true. That's why it's exciting. And you and I should be in business for a while because the landscape <laughs> is, is is rapidly changing. And I know I've only got you for a couple of short minutes left. Is there you know anything else you want to share top of mind right now that founders should be thinking about as we start to progress through this year? Yeah, I'm gonna I'll follow up on something that we that I touched on last time we talked, which was building a bench, working with people even when it wasn't your immediate need within your whatever your company was trying to do. I always encourage our founders to, you know, I just had a founder the other day where I sent them a, a good resume of a good potential salesperson. They respond and say, Well, we're not looking for that person right now. And I said, Yeah, but you might be in a year and a half. And a lot of folks are really struggling building and maintaining a network. Right now, you're not seeing the same people at functions. You're not going out. So make an effort. 
block off some time on your calendar to just chat with people, help out if you can, get off a call and there wasn't an immediate action item or follow-up, maybe just spend 10 minutes and see how you could help that person. And that's one thing that I'm really pushing our founders to do because it's just less natural now when you're not out you know, with people all the time and, and seeing your coworkers and doing other things. It's, you got to be thoughtful and purposeful about it. No, I think that's such great advice and it'll pay dividends down the road if you need it to. Maybe you don't, but you know, you're doing the right thing. And I'm a big believer in karma too. So pay <laughs> yeah. it forward. And, you know, at some point you may need it back. But yeah, I think if more people, which I think more people are, maybe I'm just surrounding myself with people, are, but it seems to be going that that direction. But I think that's really good advice because founders can get so knee deep or shoulder deep into the, the day to day. But, you know, the opportunity to continue to network and, and you're forcing them to do it, not forcing in your co-working space, right? That they're there, they can collaborate and work with each other. So, and hopefully more over the next few months. Yes. <laughs> Knock on wood. It's so funny. It used to be a two-week problem and a two-month problem. Now it feels like it's a two-year problem. I'm just hoping by this fall that we get to some level of... (laughs) The way I explain it, I remember, everybody remembers, I say, that Monday morning where COVID was a real thing. And from an investor perspective, we zeroed out all the potential investors' investment lines on our portfolio companies on their financial models. And we pushed their sales cycle back six or seven months to see what would happen. In our world of high growth startups, you know, venture-backed startups, most of those companies go out of business, right? They, yeah. their, their cash goes to zero. I remember that Monday morning, and then I was still thinking, you know, it's not going to be that bad. And then we were leaving the office, and I remember thinking whether I was going to be away from the office long enough that I should take the food that I had left in the fridge out because I was like, I'll probably be back in a day or two, and it'll still be good. And now, now I've been in the office what three times over the last eleven months. It's just uh, it keeps changing, but hopefully the uh, we got some light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, I think that's what we're hoping for. Again, I've got two in college, and one had the normal college experience. My other one's a freshman, so she's basically finishing up her freshman year. Doesn't know any different, but I'm you know hopefully by next year she'll get the the normal you know college experience. At least be able to get out and meet people and. Yeah, I don't know. You really hope for, for their sakes. Dare they're to dream. Right now, I'm an optimist and half glass is half full. So yes, we will We will get there. <laughs> Able to do that. And I would, I, would, I would encourage entrepreneurs and as they're rethinking their businesses, there are a lot of folks they probably talked to in the past. Maybe it's investors that they talked to that had a geographic thesis or a certain thesis that didn't match up with them. Well, a lot's had to change over the last couple of years, right? How close do you need to be to how many times do you need to meet with a potential investor or company before they're going to write a check? For us, it used to be I would have to spend several weeks with the team probably before we would ever actually make an investment. And we've considered over the last year making an investment without meeting a founder in person. We haven't done it, but we've considered it. And so I know a lot of the other investors I've talked to said now they have for the first time. Or maybe where a company is headquartered or what it means to be a Midwest company or a Southeast company has completely changed, right? You might only have one or two folks now a completely distributed workforce. So just how you define yourself, uh, how other investors are potentially defining their criteria and what they do may have changed over the last year. And it's probably worth checking that out. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point and, and great advice and a good way to end this this power episode. So Tim, thank you. And if folks want to you know, learn more about you and reach out again, what's the best way to connect with you? 
Uh, I always tell people if they can't find my in- information after this, then they don't deserve an investment or a follow-up conversation. There's your my first info, filter. <laughs> my info is everywhere. So Tim McLaughlin at Co-Founders Capital, you take that and run with it and you can connect with me pretty quickly. There you go. And do we want to mention, I don't know if it's top secret, the podcast that's coming out. Are yeah. you using that yet? Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I will I will give you credit for inspiring me to <laughs> actually uh, do a podcast of my own, which should be launching in March, and it's going to be called First Check. And the idea is for folks that are looking to get into investing, whether that be writing their first angel check, uh, whether that be folks looking into get in, into venture capital, how venture capital would approach diligence and thinking about building a portfolio, conversations around that, and some fun conversations with founders that we missed out on and we, we decided not to make an investment and then they went and raised money from someone else and grew and scaled and are laughing back in our faces. And so I, I fortunately I've been able to keep a, a decent enough relationship with those folks to, uh, to reach back out and have some fun conversations. Yeah. I think it's awesome. I think it's a great idea. I think it's going to be really well received. And so good luck with that. And once it's live, we'll, we'll let the audience know that that is out there and to, to go check it out. Great. That's awesome. Well, I awesome, appreciate Tim. it. I always love chatting. Yeah. Thanks for coming back on and we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you a little bit later this year, if that's all right. That sounds great. All right, man. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. All right. You too. 